um, if you have notes, um, we're going to read today from Matthew chapter 13. If you don't, you can turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 13. Um, if you remember, we said that Matthew tend to like study topics. And um, what Matthew did in chapter 13 is that he kind of made a collection of many parables that Jesus said about the kingdom of God. And the first parable that we're going to read today is the parable of the sower. Um, I know I, rem I remember when I was a little kid and we had to memorize the whole parable. It's, it's very famous. Everybody knows that parable. It's pretty um, one of Jesus' most famous teachings, I would say. So, um, so we'll read it together and then we're going to study um, what did Jesus tell us about himself and about um, the soils that we're going to read about in the parable of the sower. Um, I took the title of today's sermon from actually verse uh, 18, when Jesus said in verse 18, Matthew 13, 18, toward the bottom, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Matthew 13, 1 to 23. The same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it. That was actually a pretty common um, practice of that time that the teacher, like today, if you're a pastor, you stand up to preach. Back then, if you're the teacher, you sit down to teach. So that was the very common practice of that time. While all the people stood on the shore, then he told them many things in parables. So um, obviously, the, the parables that Matthew documented here is not the only parables that Jesus uh, spoke. It says here in verse 3, he told them many parables, but Matthew chose these seven that he listed here in chapter 13 to document for us so we can learn from them. He told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer, a sower, went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprung up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up the, and the plants were scorched and, well, well, and they withered because they had no root, other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop. 160 or 30 times that was sown. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Verse 10, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? Actually, let me pause here. There is a prophecy in the book of Psalms that the Messiah will be teaching in parables. Um, just an FYI, just as just a side note that he will teach his people in parables. Um, so the disciples here, why do you speak to your people, to the people in parables. He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, my disciples, but not to them, the crowds. Whoever has um, will, whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. And now Jesus starts quoting from Isaiah chapter 6. 
<coughs> that verse here, though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand, and then fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah. Now Jesus is elaborating from Isaiah chapter 6. We, uh, you will be even hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For the people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because you... Because you, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Verse 18. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. Now Jesus is explaining that parable. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatch, it up, snatch away what was sown into their hearts. This is the seed sown along the path. Verse 20, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed failing among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. Make, make it... make it unfruitful but the seed failing on good soil refer to someone who hears the word and understand it this is the one who produces crop yielding a hundred sixty or thirty times what was sown so it's a big passage but we need to break it down so this passage is obviously breaking down to three parts verse one to nine that is the parable uh, that Jesus actually taught. And then verse 10 to verse 17, there is kind of like an intermediary conversation that Jesus has with the disciples about why he used the parable. And then starting verse 18, Jesus went on to explain that parable to his disciples. So that's the three main parts of the passage that we were just reading. I'm not going to talk about the parable right now. We're going to just highlight a couple of things in that uh, intermediary conversation on why Jesus spoke with the parable. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the meaning of that parable. I want to start with verse 11. Just quick bullet points, highlights here that I want to bring to your attention. Um, in verse 11, when the disciple asked him, why, why do you speak in parables? Jesus said, because the knowledge of the secret of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. I just want to look at the word secret here, because the Greek word here is mysterion which we get the English word mystery from it, right? Mystery on mystery. So I want you to look into this because it can give you the impression that the kingdom of God is, 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 is mystery, is mysterious to a lot of people. But that's not really what Jesus was trying to say here. The knowledge of the kingdom, Jesus said, is, is a secret to the crowds, but it is not 
to the disciple. The idea here is if you're outside of the kingdom, you will not be able to understand what the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is all about. But once you're in the kingdom of God, it's not going to be a secret to you anymore. It's not going to be mysterious to you anymore. You will be able to understand and comprehend what the kingdom of God is all about. You guys are with me? And then Jesus explained also in verse 12, and he said, whoever has will be given more. And they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Now, that sounds very unfair, right? It seems like Jesus is not leveling the playing field. Because if you have, you'll get more. But if you don't, then even that what you have will be taken away from you. Seems like this statement is totally unfair. But we need to understand what this statement is actually telling us. Matthew repeated that exact same phrase again in um, Matthew chapter 25, verse 29. After the parable of the, of the talents and the servant. Remember that parable when the rich man brought his servants, gave them one ten talents, one five talents, one, one talent, and said, go invest it till I come back. And then at the end of that parable, Matthew says this exact same thing. That the one who has ten talents now is getting more and the one who doesn't have is taken away from him and mark in chapter 4 where this passage in mark 4 is pretty much parallel to matthew 13 the passage that we're reading here mark also mentioned that phrase but he did not mention it after the parable of the sower but after he mentioned all the parables that he was talking about you guys are with me so it seems like from mark that this this phrase here, this statement that Jesus made is meant to be kind of an overarching teaching, not particularly necessarily uh, linked to the parable that we're reading here. So what does it say? What, what is Jesus trying to tell us? Again, it sounds unfair, but that's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus is not being unfair. The idea here is this. Remember, he just said that the secret of the kingdom is hidden from the crowds, but is revealed to the disciple. So what Jesus is telling him here is this. Once you are part of the kingdom and this secret is being revealed to you, then the blessing of the kingdom will be compounded to you. You guys are with me? In the same manner, if you reject the kingdom of God, then the compound blessing of the kingdom of God, you will miss. Therefore, you're going to have compound loss. You guys are with me? Think about it this way. Somebody comes to you and say, hey, let's, let's start a business together. Um, give me $1,000 and we'll partner together and we'll start a business. And you say, no, I don't want that. Then the guy go find another partner. They start their business and their business blow up to be a multi-million dollars business. You guys are with me? Because you're rejected to participate in that business in the first place. Your loss is compounded now. And as the more that business grow, the more your loss will be compounded even more, right? If you would have taken a part of that, your blessing would have been compounded. And because you rejected that, your loss is also compounded. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you start, if you receive the secret of the kingdom, if you open your eyes and hear to understand what the kingdom of God is all about, because you have little now, more will be given to you. And the opposite is also true. If you reject that, then your, your loss will also be compounded, compounded. And that little that you have will be also taken away from you. So that's verse 11 and verse 12. And then Jesus went on 
to quote a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. What happened in Isaiah chapter 6 is that Isaiah saw the Lord, right? That's the beginning of chapter 6. It starts by saying, you know, Isaiah was in the temple. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the angels, the cherubim, one is crying to the other, you know, holy, holy, holy of the Lord of hosts. And then um, Jesus was saying, whom shall I send and who shall go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And then God, Jesus, who appeared to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, commissioned him and he said, go. And actually the Hebrew says this, make the heart of the people fat and make their eyes blind. Make sure that they don't understand it. And it appears from the passage of Isaiah, and even from the wording of Jesus here uh, in, in verses 13 to 17, that it is God who's causing the people not to understand, right? It tells us the wording here is pretty clear that it is God the reason why people cannot understand, why they cannot see, why they cannot hear, why they're not repenting. It is because God made their ears deaf and their hearts dull so they will not understand what God is all about, the message of the kingdom, as, as we read here. Isaiah's word says this, make the heart of the people fat, as if God is the one who's causing them not to hear. The Septuagint, when, when they translated that, they just kind of make it a little bit mute. So instead of the active force, make the heart of the people fat, they made it in a passive tense because the heart of the people are being made fat. You guys are with me? So made it in a passive tense as if God is not the reason behind it. But if you look at the wording that Jesus is using in verse 13 to 17, there is no question Jesus is trying at least to give us the impression to guide us to understand that it is God who's causing those who don't receive the word not to receive it you guys are with me mark actually says it even stronger because it says this make the heart of these people fat or dull in order that they might not understand so it seems like mark is definitely going with the full force of trying to tell us that god is the one who made the people do not understand you guys are with me and that kind of be uh, can be a theological problem is god the one who's making people oppose the gospel because it seems like the wording of the scripture guide us toward that conclusion you guys are with me so what is it is it god the one who predestined people to heaven and predestined people to hell no this is not what it says i'll explain it to you so bear with me here let's look at the context again even though the wording of jesus and the quotation from isaiah chapter 6 definitely guide us toward that conclusion that it is God who's making people not understand the gospel. If you look at the broader context here, the sower is the one who went out to sow the seed, right? And the sower did not look at this, at the soil that is rocky and said, you know what? This is a rocky soil. I'm not going to throw my seed there. And this is a thorny soil. I'm not going to throw my seed there. And this path I'm not going to throw my seed there. I'm only going to reserve my seed only for the good soil that's going to produce fruit. You guys are with me? If that was the case, then really kind of the sower is the one in charge who refused to sow the seed into some grounds that he knows probably not going to yield fruit, right? But in the parable, the sower went about without any discrimination, sowing the seed among every 
kind of soil. The problem was not that the sower did not want to sow the seed. The problem is that the soil did not want to respond to the seed. You guys are with me? So the idea here in the parable obviously gives us a little bit of a, a break from the idea that God predestined people to hell. That God doesn't want anybody to hear, doesn't want them to understand, it, doesn't want them to go to, um, to heaven. Because the sower went out without any discrimination, sowing the seed to everyone. The problem is that not everyone responded back to the sower's attempts to sow the seed in their lives. You guys are with me? And this tension... <clears throat> that we see here, the sower is just sowing among everyone, yet Jesus in his understanding, in his commentary, said that it is God who made the heart of the people dull. It's kind of a, a small part of the large picture in the scripture where man's choice and God's predestination appears to collide. You guys are with me? It's the issue that a lot of denominations break on. Are we predestined to heaven and hell? Or can we choose heaven or hell? You guys are with me? <clears throat> For example, let me show you the tension here in the scripture. In John 3.16, we all know that verse. For God so loved the world that <clears throat> he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have an everlasting life. So who determines who, who goes to heaven here from John 3.16? God or the people? The people, right? Whosoever believes. So it's up to you. If you want to believe, you'll go to heaven. If you don't want to believe, then you're not going to go to heaven. So John 3.16 tells us it's a matter of choice. Ephesians 1, 4 to 5, it kind of leads us the, the opposite way. It says this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption uh, to sonship through Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians, it gives us an impression that you and I, even before the foundation of the world, were pre-chosen, predestined to be children of God. So which one is it? Is John right or is Paul right? Or do we have the freedom to choose as even people outside the church? Do they have the freedom to choose? Or they're perishing because God made them to perish. You guys are with me? We see that tension in the broader scripture, but we definitely also see it here in the parable of the sower, where God's sovereignty and kind of he already predetermined the outcome seems to be colliding with the fact that the sower is going out and uh, without any discrimination, sowing the seed everywhere. So what's the answer? Does God predestine people or do people choose God? People choose God. That's the bottom line. The one correct answer right to the bottom. People choose God. So how about all these verses that tells us that God predestined people or make the heart of the people dull or make their ears deaf? What, what about all of that? This is just the way uh, the scripture speaks. This is just the style of the scripture. I'm going to explain to you. When I was at Regent, uh, one of my professors, who was a great guy, he passed away since then, but he explained it to me and not to me, to the class. And the way he said it made perfect sense. And for me, that solved the whole problem of predestination versus choice. His, his, his logical explanation from the scripture made perfect sense, and I'm going to share it with you right now. When the scripture speaks about God predestining people, the scripture speaks of the results or the outcome as if it is caused by God to prove to us that God is sovereign and nothing happened beyond his control. You guys are with me? So this is how the Bible talks. This is the Bible style of, of, of communicating with us. 
It speaks of the results as if it is caused by God to show us that God is in charge. He's in, he's in command. He's sovereign. Nothing is happening that he was not allowing to happen. For example, Matthew 10, 34 to 39. Now Jesus is speaking and he's saying this. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn the man against his father, the daughter against her, her, her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and the list goes on and on and on. Now, question. Did Jesus really come to cause division? But he says here that I have come to cause division, right? He said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword, right? I came to bring a division. Now, obviously, Jesus did not come to bring division. He came to bring peace between man and his fellow man, and obviously the whole human race and God. But Jesus here is speaking of the results as if it is caused by him. Because if someone decides to accept Christ and his father decided not to accept Christ, there will be a sword between the believer and his father. And if a, if a girl decides to believe in Jesus and the mother not to believe in Jesus, there will be a sword between the girl and her mother. You guys are with me? And that strife, that division that happens between even within the household, it is not caused by Jesus. Jesus doesn't want it to happen. It is the results of Jesus coming to bring peace and some accepting that and some rejecting that. You guys are with me? So Jesus here, the way he talks is he speak of the result as if it is caused by him so that you and I, when we go around and we face persecution from our very own family members, we can remind ourselves and say, you know what? God is sovereign. He told us this is how it's going to happen. With me, so this is the style of how the scripture talks. Sometimes speaks of the results as if it is caused by God when it is not caused by God, just to show us that God is sovereign. Is the same principle when it comes to predestination versus choice. Well, man has the freedom to choose to be saved or not to be saved. It's your prerogative. It's everyone in this world prerogative to accept or to reject Christ. Now, when it comes to those who accept Christ, the scripture speaks in predestination terms to show us that this has been God's plan all along. That you don't have to worry about falling off your salvation because this has been predetermined, kind of predestined, even before the foundation of the world. You guys are with me? So speak of the result as if it's caused by God to show that God is sovereign. There is not a single verse in the Bible that says that God has predestined people to hell. The only predestination scripture talks about the believers pre being predestined to heaven but there is not a single verse in the bible that say god has predestined that this person to hell or anything like that you guys are with me but there is that verse that says you know god made the heart of people dull god made their ear deaf so they cannot hear so let's look even in our parable that we were just reading is it god's causing them not to hear or is it the people choosing not to obey god Let's look at the interpretation of that parable. Who made the seed snatched from those that fall on the path? Was it that it says here that the birds came, the evil one came, and he snatched these seeds. You guys are with me? Is it God who came and snatched these seeds so they don't listen and hear? 
No, it is the evil one, right? So it is not God who caused that, it is the evil one. How about those who fell on rocky ground? Is it God who came and he snatched that seed out of the rocky ground so they did not bring any fruit? No, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said once the persecution comes because of the word, they fall away. Who's they? The people, not God, making them to fall away. They choose to escape persecution by denouncing God and by denouncing the kingdom of God. Who made the, 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 the seed that fell on the thorny ground to be unfruitful? Was it God who came back and said, you know what? I changed my mind. This soil doesn't even worth that I put any seed in it. I'm going to snatch it away. I'm going to take it back. Did God do that? No. It is the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth that decided, that made people decide not to continue to follow God. You guys are with me? So all of these groups of people, all of these soils that did not bring fruit, that did not obey God, it is their individual choices not to follow God. However, if you read how Jesus presented that, you would think that God caused that. You guys are with me? Again, because this is how the scripture talk. It speaks of the results as if it's caused by God to show us that God is sovereign. Fair enough? Okay, move on. Questions or we're good to go? Good to go? All right, verse 18 to verse 20. David, I was going to say, David, in Psalms, you hear from the womb. David says of God. David, say what? That he know me while I was in the womb. Right. Kind of predestination. It was Jeremiah that God said, "I knew you before I formed you in the in the womb." Is that what you were talking about? Oh yes, I think Psalm 139. David said, "God, you have formed me in my mother's womb, and you know my." You, you, but this yeah, is again God's. When he said predestination, I was just speaking my the way I understand that psalm is that it talks about God's foreknowledge. And again, foreknowledge is not equal with predestination, that God has determined, particularly when it comes to salvation, that's what I'm concerned about. That God has a plan for your life, yes, but he's expecting you and me to be obedient and follow in that plan. I'm a firm believer that you can mess up God's plan. God can redeem it when you come back to him and say, I'm sorry, God, I messed it up. Okay, I'm... Still, I'm still under, you're still under my control and I'm going to redeem that, right? But we still, it's God gives us freedom to choose. We're not robots. He works with us. He works with us, absolutely. When it comes to salvation, he works with us. When it comes to his plan, serving him, he works with us. Wayne? You need to remember that God lives in the eternal present. So absolutely. Present, future. So all present to him. present to him. Absolutely. Amen. All right, moving on. Now let's look at the interpretation of that, the interpretation of that parable, the, the four soils that Jesus spoke about. <clears throat> and honestly, this parable is very amazing because it's going to also solve to us, for me, the issue of, you know, can a believer die and go to hell or not? That you're going to find an answer to that question, which is very de divisive theological question. You're going to find an answer to that in this parable as well. So this parable for me is very theologically heavy because it teaches us a lot of things. Um, now let's just look at a couple of general notices, uh, observations about these soils that we were just reading about. You notice that 
you can really divide these four soils into two categories. The first three, that's the unfruitful, unproductive ones, and then you have the last category, which is the one that actually yielded fruit or crop. Now, the first three, the th first three soils, there is a progression in how these soils were responding to the seed that were sown by the sower. You guys are with me? The first, the first one didn't even go into the ground. It just fell. The birds came and took it away. Didn't even go inside the ground. It pretty much kind of rejected the seed. The second one, actually, the seed went in and it produced something, but that plant that came out just fall away very quickly and vanished. The third one, kind of debatable how it responded, it says that the thorn have shocked the, the, the seed. So it seems like that seed grew but was just unfruitful. The plant came out but it's shocked. It cannot even produce any fruit. So it appears like among the at least the first three kind of soils, there is a progression. Some never responded, they rejected. Some responded a little bit and the other responded even better, but all at the end of the day, unfruitful. Now, if you go back to the quote from Isaiah, this is important as far as how Jesus understands receiving the gospel is. If you look back into the quote in, in Isaiah from Matthew 13, 13, it says this, those seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or... Uh, this is a key word right here. So they might hear it, but they don't understand it. It doesn't register. If you skip to verse 14, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. They will ever hear him, but never understanding. Again, that same word of understanding. Um, you will never, um, you will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Do you see the idea of understanding that Isaiah spoke about multiple times, that you can hear something, but you're not really processing the information. You're not really understanding what this is all about. What is the point? Now, Jesus, in a way, emphasized that word understanding when he explained that the parable of the soil. It appears that the first three kinds did not understand, even though they heard, they did not understand. But the last one kind of heard and understood understood the message of the gospel. We see in verse 18 this, listen to the, uh, verse 19, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and what? Does not understand it. It's the same not understanding that Isaiah spoke about. We didn't see the word understanding in describing the rocky soil or the thorny soil, but if you skip all the way to the last kind of soil, in verse 23, it says this, then the seed falling on good soil refer to someone who what? Hears the word and uh, understand it. So understanding the word is really the key difference between those who ultimately accepted the message of the gospel and those who ultimately reject the message of the gospel. And it's very easy if you go out and you witness, you can tell this is very practical, very real, because people do hear the message. I can sit down here with you and I can tell you names of people that you share the gospel with them and you quiz them into what you have just said and they give you all the right answers. They tell you, yes, I cannot be saved by my works. Yes, it's only by the grace of God. Yes, without the cross, there is no salvation. They give you all the wording, but then when you ask them, are you committing your life to Christ? No, I don't want to do that. You guys are with me because they hear it, but they don't really understand it. And that's the different, the one factor that differentiates between those who accept the message of the kingdom and those who reject the message of the kingdom. Amen? Amen. <coughs>
<coughs> how many kinds of soil do we have in our parable? We have four kinds. The first kind is the one that filled by the path. In the parable, Jesus said that um, the birds come and snatch them. And his interpretation, he said that the evil one is the one who snatch it. These people are the ones who flat out reject the message of the gospel. They, they hear the message of the kingdom, right? And they say, I don't want it. I don't want to do nothing with it. I'm happy where I'm at. I'm just not going to follow Jesus. I'm not going to even consider following Jesus. And there are plenty of them in our world, right? Now, the dangerous ones, really, for me, is number two and number three. These are the tricky, dangerous ones. Let's look at the second one, the kind that fills on rocky ground. Now, the reason number two and number three are dangerous is that they mimic true conversion. From the outside, even for a while, you think that this is real, right? But after a, a while, you can see that it is not real because time will tell you if it's real or not. So kind number two and kind number three is pretty, pretty actually scary when you think about it. It makes you wonder like, my gosh, how many people in our churches even belong to these kinds, number two and number three, and don't have a real genuine conversion, real genuine experience with Christ. Now let's look at the one who starts number two, the rocky ground. <clears throat> Look at them. Jesus said this. They receive the word with the, what? Joy. joy. They receive it with gladness, with joy. And isn't that a pretty standard experience? Yes. If you're a child of God, a genuine, real child of God, you receive the word with the joy. Acts 16, 36, talking about the jailer. When Paul and Silas were in prison, and it says this, the jailer brought them into the house and set a meal before them. He was filled with what? Joy. Joy, just like those who fall on the rocky ground. He received the word with joy. Why was he filled with joy? Because he had come to believe in God, he and his household. He heard the word, that the jailer heard the word, and he received it with that joy. Just like the ones who fall on the rocky ground. Do you see how crazy and dangerous that can be? You're like almost the real deal. You guys are with me? Mm -hmm. But number two, Jesus said the last only for a short time. Now, the first two words here, they last. Yes, I understand it's only for a short time, but that first part is extremely scary because they last. Let's say they last for a week or two. Let's say that. And then eventually they fade away and they fall away. But while lasting, if you're from the outside, if you're not that person, you look at them and you see, man, this is real. That seed fell down. You don't see the rocks under the soil, right? You see that the seed fell down and you see the plant coming out. What else do you need to show or to prove that this is a real, genuine uh, response to the message of the gospel. If you're from the outside, you think this is as real as it, as, as it can be. It's just acting in the same exact manner like the seed that fell on the good soil. You put, you don't see the rocks, you put the seed in both soils, they both start bringing forth plants, fruits, and or the plants start coming out and say, man, this is both good soil. You guys are with me? You cannot tell the difference. But the key difference is that second part only for a short, they last, but only for a short time. You guys are with me? Mm -hmm. So how do you know if somebody who comes to Jesus, 
Say, I'm a believer. I'm going to follow Jesus. How do you know if their commitment is real or it's a fake commitment? How do you know if this is a genuine conversion or not a genuine conversion? It is that test of time. If they last, it's real. If they don't last, I don't know their hearts. I don't know about you. I don't know their hearts. I cannot tell if it's real or not. But if it is not real, they're going to last for a little bit. They come to church. They might start standing up here and testify. They might go out witnessing with you. They're going to act like normal, radical conversion like anybody else. But it's not going to last. You guys are with me? It is the test of time that shows you if that was a real uh, experience with the Holy Spirit, a reconversion or not. We've seen this in the book of Hebrews. That was the, the issue that the author of Hebrews had with the people that he wrote that letter to, right? They're, they appeared like they're experiencing a real genuine thing, just like everybody else. But when the persecution came, you remember we talked about this for a year and a half or whatever. They want to go back. They want to leave Christ, want to leave Christianity because of the persecution, because of the word. They wanted to go back to where they came from, to Judaism. They didn't stand the, the test of time. You guys are with me? Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. Here's what the author of Hebrews said. It is impossible for those who had been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers, just like normal conversion, just normal Christian experience and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away just like that seed that fell on the rocky ground that fell away to be brought back to repentance to their loss they have crucified they are crucifying the son of god over and over again and subjecting themselves to public disgrace you guys see that that is a scary kind of people because as a pastor you go out witnessing or whatever. Some people start responding. It's like, great, let's, let's do discipleship. Let's, let's learn the scripture. They follow with you once or twice, and then eventually they're gone. Is this a real conversion or not? I don't think it is. I mean, people entitled to their opinion, but from what I'm seeing in God's word here, this is not a real conversion. This is just the seed that fell on a rocky ground, not on a good soil. Amen? Mm -hmm. Now, let me, I noticed this too. Like when Jesus spoke the parable, he said that they sprung up quickly right they just fell and sprung up quickly and then when jesus took about how they're falling it says he says this in his interpretation of that parable they quickly falls down do you see that so they quickly came up and they quickly came down which is the problem obviously why it's quickly up and quickly down is that there's no root it is not real but if you look at the first part they quickly sprung up I don't know. Let's put that in terms of conversion and Christianity. And you go somebody who's like, whatever, doing drugs or whatever, living apart from Jesus. You share the gospel with them. And they quickly spring up, quickly become like, man, fanatic for Jesus. They come to church. They start like, want to preach. They want to go tell people about Jesus. And everything you do is just, man, so radical, so quickly becoming like regular plants in that church. You guys are with me. Right? And maybe if they never face persecution, you will never see them falling away quickly. But it is not real. It's not real because there is no root. The seed actually fell on rocky ground. Scary, isn't it? Scary. Scary stuff. But it's, this is God's word. Now the third kind is also as dangerous as the second kind. The second kind fell away because of persecution, because of the word you guys are with me once they 
the robber hit the road and they have to pay to follow Jesus, they're checked out. I'm not following this. I don't have to pay anything to follow Jesus. Now, that third group of people, it's a little bit different. They're, they're not fading away because of persecution, but it is because of the worries of this life and that deceitfulness of wealth. The Bible says that this is kind of like thorns that shook the, the plant, that shook the seed. We don't know exactly what that means. Does that mean that the plant is actually there, but it's choked, doesn't produce fruit, or the plant is just falling away and dead? The point is still the same. There is no fruit. It's not real. It's not genuine like the people in the fourth uh, category and the one that fell in the, in the good soil. You guys are with me? Now, it's interesting what Jesus said here. Jesus said two categories, two things that shocks the seed in that thorny ground. It is the worries of life and that deceitfulness of wealth. Now, the, the way I look at this is that the worries of life and the deceitfulness of, of wealth, by saying these two categories, Jesus, in a way, have covered all the spectrum of people regardless of their financial status. Because for the poor, if you're poor and you need money to live, money for you forms or make the worries of life, right? You're worried about meeting your basic needs. You need that money to provide for your kids. It's the worries of life if you're poor. If you're rich, you want more money so you can be more powerful. So money for you, the material stuff for you at this stage, represent the deceitfulness of wealth. You're being deceived. You think that the more money you have, the more security you have. You guys are with me? So. It's the same thing, money, the same thing, the material stuff. For the poor, it is the worries of life. And for the rich, it's the deceitfulness of wealth. What Jesus is saying here is, regardless really of your financial status, is the attitude of your heart that chokes the word. You guys are with me? It's the attitude of your heart. Because if you're poor and you want money because your heart is not in the right place, you will make your excuse as Money is the worries of life. I need more to provide my needs. If you're rich, money is the deceitfulness of wealth. So it's not really about how much money you have. It's about the attitude of your heart that you want more regardless of how rich or how poor you are. You guys are with me? And that desire to have more is what shocks the word the Bible says. It's shocked. It can breathe. It cannot produce any fruit. And that goes back to what Jesus told us, even in the Sermon on the Mount, that man cannot serve two masters, either God or mammon. Because if you're trying to serve God while you're loving and lusting after mammon, the mammon will come and choke the word of God in your life and you're still going to be unfruitful. You guys are with me? So it's not just a persecution. It is that category, that group of people. They just want more in life. They're so consumed about this world and the things of this world that they don't have time for Jesus. They don't have time for the kingdom of God. Whether it's the worries of life, whether it's the deceitfulness of sin, that ultimately shocks the word of God in their lives, and they ultimately don't produce fruit. Amen? But from the outside, you might not tell, at least for a while, that this is fake. They see the plant coming, you know, yes, there's swords, but you see the plant coming, you might think, hey, this is great. But then after a while, either because the worries of life or the deceitfulness of wealth, they start getting choked and they don't produce any fruit. 
That's crazy, right? And it tells like, it's the scary part again is if and how many people in our churches that have the appearance, the mirage, the facade of real conversions, real relationship with Christ when they actually don't, right? They haven't faced persecution yet. You know, they come to church, but you don't know. They don't spend time with God because they'd rather work to make more money than cutting 10, 15 minutes of their day to spend time with God. It's not real fruit. Amen? Now, let's move to the last part. Now, the last part is the one that is real conversion because it produces real fruit. How do you know that this is real or it's fake? The evidence comes in the fruit if you produce crop then you're real if you don't produce crop then you are not real you guys are with me amen now this category of people are the one who experience christ in a genuine real way and their conversion is genuine and they are truly children of god when they face persecution they say i don't care what i have to pay to follow jesus i am a child of god and i'm gonna follow him amen when they are being choked by the worries of life they say i don't care if i'm gonna get poor i'm still gonna make room for jesus and i'm gonna follow him no matter how hard the worries of life are when they are being enticed by the deceitfulness of wealth they say i don't care how much money or whatever the world can offer me i am not gonna follow that because i have committed myself to follow Jesus. You guys are with me? See, these are the group of people that decide in their hearts that commitment, their commitment to follow Jesus is real no matter what happened, what come their way. And I tell you, when I go out witnessing and I ask people, you know, present the gospel and say, now your part, your response is to make a commitment to follow Jesus. And it's like, oh yeah, this I did long time ago. But they're still not living for Jesus. You guys are with me? They're still not living the life that Jesus wants them to live. They say they made the commandment, but they don't live the commandment. Jesus here in this parable is really telling us this simple, simple, important lesson. That if you don't live the commandment, then you didn't really mean the commandment. You guys are with me? If you, didn't, if you don't live the commandment, then you didn't mean the commandment. So even when I go out and see people and say, hey, you need to commit your life to Christ. Oh, I did this long time ago. They might be living with their girlfriend or their boyfriend, smoking and drinking and doing drugs and all this stuff, but they definitely tell you that they have made the commitment. I don't care what commitment you made. It is not a real commitment. You guys are with me? The scripture says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The opposite is also true. If you are not a new creation, you are not in Christ Jesus. I don't care if you made a million commitments to Jesus. These commitments are not real because it doesn't produce real fruit. Amen? 1 John 3, 9 to 10. Here is what John said. No one, no one means how many people can be excluded from that rule. No one, right? No one can be excluded from that. No one who is born of God will continue in the sin will continue to live the life of sin not here and there fallen in sin but continue to live the life of sin why because God's seed the Holy Spirit remains in them 
What if persecution come 10 years down the road? No matter what, the Holy Spirit remains in them. What if the worries of life start heading down the road? No matter, the Holy Spirit remains in them. What if the deceitful wealth come their way later, 10 years down the road? No, it doesn't matter because the Holy Spirit, the seed of God, remains in them. You guys are with me? They cannot, look at this, they're incapable of go on sinning. Why? Because they're new creation. They're not the exact same, they're not the same people who used to be. Because they have been born of God. Verse 10, by this the children of God are distinguished from the children of the devil. Anyone who does not practice righteousness live righteousness as their normal way of living life is not of God. This is just as simple as that. If, it, if you practice righteousness or you appear that you have changed for a year or two, a month or two, a week or two, whatever time it is, if you ultimately fall back, this is where I stand, according to that parable, that conversion was not real. It lasted, but for a short time. You guys are with me? Real commitment produce real fruit. If you don't live the commitment, you don't mean, you didn't mean the commitment. You guys are with me? Amen? Amen. Alright, so let me close with that. Like the marriage analogy again that I use all the time. When I committed my life to Katrina on our wedding, I told her, you know, you're it. I'm going to live for you and I'm not going to, I'm going to quit chasing other girls and this is it for me, right? You're going to be the only girl moving forward. Imagine that after I did that, after I made that vow, a month or two, a year or two later, now I'm back asking other girls out. Do you think I meant that commitment? It doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't matter. Maybe I was sincere when I was saying that. But at the end of the day, I always wanted to, you know what? I, I mean it, but once the rubber hit the road, once I have seen the sincerity of that commitment that I have made, and that man, I really don't have to, like, I really can't chase any other woman. I know, forget that. I'm going to go after another girl. You guys are with me? So if you made the commitment, if, this, if you don't live that commitment that you made, then that commitment wasn't even real in the first place. Amen? And that's the point here in, the, in these four soils. A genuine conversion will produce genuine fruit. Amen? If anyone in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. What if somebody is not a new creation, then they're not in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's close our eyes and pray.